And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello! I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club Season 2! Oh yeah, here we are! We recorded last week, I believe, so it's weird feeling... Because we're still in summer over here. How is how is the future? Are the protests over? Have we, like, achieved revolution? I don't know, man. We'll know in two months. I do think, though, that... So Harmony and I regularly pre-record for the podcast, but as you'll know if you listen to any of season one, or the end of season one, we were doing a lot of work really actively around the Black Lives Matter movement every episode because it just felt so prescient. And we'll probably, when this comes out, continue to post resources and things like that. But just know if, you know, something happens in late August that you feel like we should have addressed in this episode and didn't, it's because we're currently recording in June. You are very much in the future. So if anything like that happens, please check out our episode description. It's not that we're ignoring things. We're just busy humans at the moment. We gotta gotta record when there's time. Yes, 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 yes. And we're sorry if anything feels dated, because who knows what's going to happen in a month from now. Yeah, things are moving very, very quickly. Mostly positively, <laughs> sometimes negatively, but... Oh boy. Okay, so what are we talking about today, Maggie? Uh, we're talking about what, so far in this year of our Lord 2020, has been the best book I've read this year, which is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, which is a memoir. I know, right? Coming at you with nonfiction, the first episode. Look at that character growth. Can we also talk about how, so I re-listened to our first, our first two episodes of the actual podcast. And at the beginning of the podcast, the beginning of season one, I say that my favorite book of 2019 was Maria Machado's other book to date, or, or no, it's called Her Body and Other Parties, <laughs> Her Body and Other Parties. And Maggie was not a fan, but now this is her fave book. So far, yeah, we'll see if it holds up, but, like, it's just really the one that does it for me. Although, to be fair, I think I said at the time the reason that that first book didn't do it for me was, like, a writing-style thing with, like, and also the fact that I've never watched Law & Order SVU. (laughs) But the writing style is very similar for this book, so that's why I find it funny. And you can see direct references, like, to the things that inspired those stories that she writes about in her body and other parties. Oh, for sure. It's just less magical, like less magical realism in this book because it is nonfiction. And that was the part that I had trouble grappling with in her body and other parties was that I just sometimes felt like I really couldn't get a grip on what was going on, you know? Whereas this one for me, I think because it is rooted in reality where it did kind of take like slight you know detours because there's parables in here that she does a lot of stuff in here i found it easier to follow the general narrative um Mm. which for me was i think what i found difficult with that like whole collection of stories as a total you know i can see that i can see that do you want to give us a summary of the book yeah so in the dream house is a memoir about essentially domestic violence between two women 
So it's Machado sort of giving an account of her relationship and also really dissecting not just what that meant between her and her partner at the time, but like culturally is really a critique about the way we talk about and think about domestic violence, especially in queer communities. Yeah. And it definitely challenges, it challenges a lot of our perceptions about domestic violence in general within queer communities, but also just like the difference between physical abuse and emotional abuse. And we'll get into that later, but it's, it's really fantastic. But this is also a weird memoir because it's structured in a way that's kind of similar to her body and to the stories in her body and other parties. Like there is magical realism that goes on and a blend between fiction and reality. And yes, do you want to start talking about the structure, Miss Mags? Yeah, I think the place I want to start is that this story, even for memoirs, like it's not, it's told linearly in the sense that like for the most part, we start at point A in this relationship and we end at point B, Machado no longer being in that relationship and being in a healthier and safer space. So like generally speaking, we follow that narrative arc, but the way it's told is essentially in little vignettes rather than in like traditional chapters, which I found really interesting. I have thoughts on why she decided to go with the vignette route, but Harmony, do you have, what what, what was your feeling about that? I think it's because she's talking about memories related to trauma and Actually, I'm going to diverge a little bit from the vignettes to explain why I think it's written in vignettes. This book is also written, um, for the most part, in the second person narrative. And she is talking to not necessarily you, the reader, but to you, her past self, somebody she feels really disconnected from now, today. So I feel like the vignettes are used as a way to kind of, like, I think it's her her understanding of like putting the narrative together. I think that her, I think at least as someone who has experienced trauma for me, my memories are often fragmented and I can't always remember everything. And sometimes it's the feeling that is more important than like the actual events that occurred. And so I think that both actually the second person narration, because she's like trying to separate herself from it and the vignettes are a way to cope with that and tell her story in a way that feels accurate to her. Yeah, I totally agree, especially the the, the part about the way we handle trauma, because that's absolutely how memory works, right? Is like things get fragmented and lost and like disjointed. And sometimes the chapters don't clearly like flow naturally in the sense of like, we've ended a chapter on one topic and therefore we're going to move on to another like tangentially related topic. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But I found that to be... Honestly, for me, that was one of the most powerful things in this book was that, like, I think for a lot of people, regardless of what kind of trauma you've experienced, it affects the brain in very similar ways and memory in very similar ways. And so part of me reading this was just being like, yes, like, I have not lived this exact experience, but a lot of the way that you're talking about it, even just from this base structure of the book, really mirrors my own experiences with trauma and how I remember that. Um And I think that going off your point also about the distancing thing, something else I found interesting about this book is that when we talk about it being a blend of fiction and nonfiction, I think it goes even further than that because it's 
also a blend between two kinds of nonfiction to a certain extent, because it is not just a memoir, but it's also a very prescient cultural critique. So she brings in lots of other texts to support what she's saying and critiques other like popular culture. And um, she critiques like prominent theories about domestic violence. But something that I found really compelling about that is that she footnotes everything, even the things that relate, like that are just like personal essay storytelling, you know, which I thought was really compelling, but also felt to me there was almost a sorrow there too because it felt like she to me as the reader sometimes like she still needed to justify her own personal experience with the footnotes to be like this is my story footnote here this is a text that supports that right oh okay I didn't read it that way I don't think it was like that all the time but definitely sometimes yeah I could see that I could see that she did she did footnote a lot, but what struck me about the footnotes was sometimes she'd just be like using a single word and would footnote it to another parable or something. Um, one of her constants was motif index of folk lit literature, type C420.2, taboo. And she'll footnote certain words and then relate it to like this folkloric sort of taboo. I don't know because I'm not familiar with this text. To me, that kind of felt more like an intersectional layering like her connection the reason yeah she uses parables like when we talk about her using other texts it's not done at all in an essay sort of way like it still reads as though I am reading fiction sort of because it is so experimental and so very very personalized so to me it was kind of like uh my experience is important but look it's not the only experience and this is always happening. And look at how all of these different things relate. And kind of like she was making a sort of spider web to her experiences and other things around her. Like I, as somebody who thinks a lot in symbolism, I really appreciated that and felt like she was just threading in everything. And I also found that empowering as a narrative about somebody's traumatic experience because it kind of, it kind of means that she's not alone. In one way, and it also gives it meaning. And the way she's taking it and creating a story, she's giving it extra meaning, which I know, for me at least, is like a really empowering act and is one of the reasons why I cling to symbolism. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that I felt it more when she was directly citing like studies, because she does cite a lot of sociological studies in this. And on the one hand, I agree with you that it is empowering to be like this experience does belong in a web. And I think this also could just be me projecting again, you know, my own traumatic experiences on it and like being asked a lot of the time to justify with data why I feel certain ways. Sometimes it felt a little bit to me like I wish that like this statement alone that she's making could just be enough. So like on the one hand, I found a lot of the I found a lot of the footnotes really empowering as a reader. And then on the other hand, occasionally I was like, I feel like in a perfect world for me as a reader, this sentence that you're footnoting, the statement that you just made should just be enough because you're somebody who's experienced this. And like, I think though that always when you read a book that you really emotionally connect with, which I think on the podcast, this is one that I like 
deeply emotionally connected with in a way that I don't always with the texts that we read. It can sometimes be hard as a, as a, you know, critiquer, reviewer, whatever you want to call us to, to occasionally separate that out. So I guess I want to call that out for myself for like this whole episode is that like that I, I'm not as objective about this text, I think, as I am with some of the other texts that we're reading, because I just love it so fucking much. I get that. I think I feel that too. And I think that's completely okay. I don't think that, um, I don't know that projection here in some instances is necessarily wrong because it is such a personalized tale. And she is clearly like, just to be clear, this experience is very clearly meant to be documented. Like we said before about an experience between like femme abuse like an experience of a woman abusing another woman in a romantic relationship. And to my knowledge, that's not something Maggie and I personally have exact experience with. But it was like, yeah, for both of us, we read it and we were like, this relates so much to our personal experiences that aren't this, um, that aren't about queer relationships within with women and female abuse. Um, but like still gave us a new sort of language because... Domestic abuse in general isn't talked enough about. Uh, and so we, we're we going to try and honor the fact that Machado made this specifically because she needs more. She felt she needed more texts about femme violence in, in romantic relationships, but also acknowledge that abuse is abuse <laughs> and trauma is trauma. I'm trying to find, she specifically talks at one point a little bit about what you were bringing up, the the fact that she can't, that the people don't just like believe her. Oh, okay. So she does later on in the book describe a few, a few instances that I felt touched on her relationship to not being believed. And the first instance of this that I really clung on to was on page 143, she talks about her family referring to her and her emotions as mel- melodramatic. And it says at one point, she she quotes, why do we teach girls that their perspectives are inherently untrustworthy? I would yell. And that to me got a little bit at what you're saying, at like the idea that we have to prove uh, trauma with statistics rather than just being believed and like having our experiences and our feelings valued. Yeah. So that very well could have been the case because she talks about that more explicitly later on in the book where she's like talking to people about her abuser and they don't always believe her and kind of talks about the effect that has on her. Yeah. And she's really clear in the book too, going back to Harmony's original point that like part of the reason it's not just about domestic violence, but part of the reason people have such a hard time believing her is because she was in, you know, what like woman love woman relationship. And something that she does, I think really interestingly in this text is simultaneously talk about the fact that like a lot of people assume, right. That like, women love woman relationships are the dream house to a certain extent, right? Like they're the ideal and nothing bad happens in them. And she honors the fact that like that can be true and that they can be really beautiful experiences while also making you backtrack and be like, but that like you can't idealize, right? Like you can't 
ignore the fact that these things are common occurrences in any kind of relationship, no matter what gender you have. And it's especially untalked about when the abusers are female, which I think to a certain extent does also mirror heterosexual relationships or heteronormative relationships in that there's a lot of just belief in the world that like women can't be abusers and that's untrue. But she just does such an eloquent job of discussing that this entire book in like the queer community and how all of these layers mean that her story was ignored for a long time I think I think to a certain extent even by herself right like she talks at the end of the book about being in a house in Oregon on a writing retreat where she started to write this book but even at the time she didn't know she was really writing this book and I found that to be a very beautiful metaphor for the things that like we bury and hide in ourselves because we're not ready to process or because society tells us that like we're wrong and like those things didn't actually happen or couldn't happen and stuff yeah yeah I kind of saw that as a theme throughout the book like her just not having the language to describe what was going on because in particular women who love women relationships being described as abusive there's not a lot of media surrounding it and there's not a lot of language to surround it even though it does exist and I think the numbers on it are pretty high. I actually have a really great quote, if you don't mind, that I think really illustrates that point where like a breakdown in communication and manipulating of language is a lot of what the psychological aspect of this abuse was about, I think, for Machado. And there's this really short passage she has on page 111 called Dreamhouse's Tragedy of the Commons. She is always trying to win. You want to say to her, we cannot advance together if you are like this. Love cannot be won or lost. A relationship doesn't have a scoring system. We are partners paired against the world. We cannot succeed if we are at odds with each other. Instead, you say, why don't you understand? Don't you understand? You do understand? Then what don't I understand? And I feel like to me, that's such a brilliant metaphor for things. Because when we talk about not having the language, it doesn't always mean that you don't say things it's that you don't have the way to say things even in the moment that like you're actually thinking and it's not because you couldn't put pen down to paper right like it's an entire circumstance of situations that either mean that you can't process those things to put language to it until later or you're in a place where you're unsafe to actually think to actually say what you're thinking like there's a whole puzzle piece here of what it means to me at least to like not have the language always to talk about trauma I agree and I'm I'm glad you picked that one out as this it was page 111 right Mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah I'm glad you picked that one out as a language issue because I completely read it I mean it can be intersectional right like it's a passage that means multiple things but for me it really struck me in my personal circumstances as a power move because And my experience, this is how kind of the majority, I mean, like the majority of relationships I've been surrounded by are uh, like, it's a constant power struggle. And one of the things, I I don't know how related this is, but like one of the things uh, that made this book really hard for me is the fact that like, in my first relationship, I was emotionally and uh, verbally abusive to my high school boyfriend. And so, like, this really struck me because in this case, I read it and I was like, I am the girl in the dream house because it was very much how 
I thought about relationships, the idea of winning. Yeah, that is interesting. The idea of having your words twisted like that and therefore not having the language because it's dangerous to, to, to speak. I thought about language a lot in terms of, yeah, in terms of just like not having enough representation, but also because the representation that we do have is woman in, like having a dream house. And that was interesting to me because that is something that Machado herself really strived for in this female relationship and also like desired and won and part of what was attractive about it was this idea of like a lesbian utopia mm-hmm. and even though we don't have anyone with a dick or like any masculine identifying people in this particular circumstance there was still a lot of harmful almost patriarchal abuse that happened and I don't know if that violence like I wrote it as patriarchy but I don't know if it's accurate necessarily to describe it because it can exist in its own space Mm -hmm. and I think that was something that was really complicated with this idea and with the fact that there was language right like how can you have patriarchy in a situation that is so feminized and part of what I felt like Machado was trying to do was like be like, no, this this violence exists within feminization and it's not necessarily the same. But she also kind of interweaves instances like the abuser's uh, father was violent to her mother. And like she at one point on page 126 references Norman Mailer, a famous writer who famously abused and stabbed his wife. Like she interweaves patriarchy throughout this. And I wonder if that's just like a disconnect between her trying to like, maybe that's a disconnect because that's her only frame of reference for violence, or if it is still inherently patriarchal, even when we take quote unquote, like even when we take masculinity out of the situation, does that make sense? And what do you think about it? Yeah, I, that was something I thought about a lot too, when I, first read this especially because right from the beginning of the book Machado talks a lot about things that I feel like end up coming up in sort of more traditional heteronormative feminist discourses like she talks about on page 24 dream house is the luck of the draw right like part of the problem was as a weird fat girl you felt lucky She did what you wished a million others had done, looked past arbitrary markers of social currency and senior brain and ferocious talent and quick wit and pugnacious approach to assholes. I think that stuff like that shows the ways in which the patriarchy and the way that females are trained to think about themselves in relation to others starts to me, I think, in a really patriarchal society. But I think that a place where she pushes back sometimes on that is that like ultimately if you just look at the situation she was in in a vacuum which she does sometimes and not in others it does just exist in like this very feminized space so I think it's hard 
we're all raised in the patriarchy, right? Even if we, right now at least, even if we are in, you know, like women love women relationships or, you know, just any relationship that isn't heteronormative. So I mm-hmm. think it's just hard to separate those two things no matter what. I do think, though, that going back to your issue on representation, though, that's absolutely something Machado talks about here, is that there isn't enough representation of women-on-women violence in that sense, like in queer domestic violence relationships. And so I think sometimes she has to draw on typical, like, heteronormative um, examples just because, like, that like you're saying about the language, like that's just the language that she has to draw on. So I think that part of her point in writing this is talking about the fact that like these things are sort of separate from the patriarchy, but it's sort of hard to make a complete argument just based on that when like she is, to my knowledge, really one of the first people who's really talking about that, you know? At the very least, she's probably the most popular, right? Like Right now, at least, definitely. Yeah, so like... I feel like it's all influenced by the patriarchy, but as somebody who's in a heteronormative relationship, I think it's hard for me to say that, like, firmly, you know, because I haven't really experienced what it's like otherwise. Um, I'm sorry if that didn't make sense. You brought up a lot of great points. I tried to address them all. (laughs) Well, no, I think that, yeah, I mean, to go back to your repre- to go back to the point of representation that we keep making, she does she does give it instances of real life examples of femme on femme violence that have been documented, and like how they've been dealt with in like court and by the media, and it tended to be that women who committed violence were thought of as more masculine or mm-hmm. unwomanly. And I think that relates to what we're talking about here for the language. Like this is we're we're imposing a very heteronormative patriarchal view on violence in general. And that is what the majority of the cultural language surrounding it exists of. And interestingly enough, she talks a lot about how women of color also aren't seen as victims. And, and Maria Machado is a Latina woman. So, like, she is a woman of color. Who was dating a white blonde lady at the time, to also put it out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's just, like, this, like, in order to be feminine, you have to exist in only one space. And that space means that you're often slight, which her partner, by the way, was. You're slight and girlish and submissive, which doesn't necessarily describe her her partner to my knowledge as she's depicted in this book, but you're slight and girlish and submissive and often white because that's what the cultural phenomena of femininity looks like, at least in the, in in depiction, at least in the United States. And I would argue now it's probably like it it is, it seems from what little I do know, talking to people from other cultures, like it does seem to be a global phenomenon because of things like globalization and colonization. I mean, I think that you see it everywhere in data bias, right? Like, not to take us too off topic, but there was this recent study that came out by this Dutch university, which like, you know, the Netherlands, generally speaking, a very sort of homogenous society, I would say, as I think a lot of uh, that area of the world is at least generalized as being. And they came out and they did this whole study where they analyzed like the 100 most perfect faces in the world. And for example, I think there was only one Asian person on there. So like our, um, it was Sochin from BTS, but that's, that's a whole other situation. Um, but like, 
so like those biases and stuff I think are really I think it's fair to say that I think they're really ingrained in the way we um talk about and think about femininity and beauty for all genders almost is that like because of colonization white standards are what's being upheld all over the place um and I think it's interesting that you mentioned that too because if we're talking about like essentially lesbian stereotypes here right like her girlfriend was the more quote-unquote femme one and she was the more sometimes I think at least well I mean with the long blonde hair and she they she calls her out for she had short hair I thought sometimes I think she had long blonde hair there's a point where she talks about the fact that she's like angry and blonde and white and like 105 pounds in the living room and stuff and like I think that in a lot of ways Machado would be characterized potentially as being even by herself the more butch person in the relationship sometimes even similarly just by size because I think a lot of the way we talk about that does is based on size um Mm -hmm. and Machado talks really openly about her weight in this and I'm obviously not trying to um like push these stereotypes or anything I'm just trying to think about it I just I'm just trying to think about it in the ways that like people sometimes are stereotyped when we're from the outside looking in at these things so I think it it makes it even harder to be like it probably made it even harder for Machado right because I bet you most of the circumstances in which woman love woman violence does happen like she and who she is and who she's probably perceived as especially at this time before she was really famous while this was all going on probably would not have been looked on as like it would have taken a lot more for people to see her as the victim just because we're so inherently biased for all of these reasons yes i agree with that i agree with that a lot i want to um maybe you heard maggie's reaction to my ridiculous faces so (laughs) that's it's just so interesting that you read it that way because like on a on a physical level i definitely understand what you're saying and i get that but within their interactions and I guess probably like within the way Machado thinks of herself and their like relationship, she does often play the femme party. Mm-hmm. She talks about a fantasy at one point where she's like a fifties housewife and her partner is wearing a tux and is like playing like, yeah, I guess her partner does seem to me to be like the more quote unquote, butch one in their interactions. I totally agree. I think that's, I think that's part of the point I'm playing at, though, is that, like, from the outside looking in, all perceptions are wrong. Probably about everyone's relationship, but I think this book (laughs) really specifically delves into, like, the reasons why this was such a constant issue for Machado while she was in this position. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. Okay. I don't think I capped this page, but earlier in the book... There is a point. Her partner, just so everyone realizes, she was also like, we find out throughout the book, spoiler alert, like a serial cheater in addition to being abusive. And when she first meets her partner, she's actually dating another girl named Val. And uh, eventually, like, you know, her and the partner hook up. Her, the partner and Val, according to the partner, are in an open relationship. So there's a a time when she like helps her partner move in to a house that she's going to live in with Val, her girlfriend. And Machado has this beautiful passage that I think really embodies her idea of like what the dream house should be at the time. Um, in which they're in a beautiful 
polyamorous relationship. For something that's a very dense book, it's not actually very long. (laughs) May I read this passage? It might be kind of long. Yeah, I think that's fine. In Indiana, you go from house to house together. You drive, your girlfriend is in the passenger seat. Val is in the back. The loose explanation is that they are the couple and you are the friend with wheels, but in every place you are all thinking about bedrooms. Do you need two? One for you and her? One for her and Val? What about a futon in the office? You all laugh, crowd into rooms. If the landlords have questions, they don't verbalize them. You think, they can't even imagine it. The perfection and lushness of this arrangement. One house is magical, tucked into a deep pocket of trees, all wood and rustic, with more rooms than you could fill if you tried. You remember a puzzling set of indoor windows as if the house had swallowed a second tiny house. Another is hilariously dilapidated, and every surface of the kitchen is covered in clean, drying shot glasses. A party house with at least one curiously conscientious resident. It smells like teenage boys, sweat and scented sprays and Doritos. During a long interval between appointments, you visit a pet store and see a tiny pile of ferrets nestled together in their enclosure. You give them all funny voices, tell a story about the boss you had at a summer job who asked if she could show you a photo of her kids and then showed you a picture of her ferrets. By the time you're back outside in the sunlight, you're all laughing. The last house, the most perfect, is owned by a beautiful young couple both redheads, whose children come to the door clutching their mother's skirt while she stirs a bowl of batter. It's like a fairy tale. Chickens peck in the yard. A beautiful lanky dog sleeps on the porch. The house is heated by a wood stove. You know the place is impractical, too far from town, but you love it so much your heart aches. It is here, standing under a canopy of trees, watching your girlfriend talk to the husband, that you'll first admit the fantasy to yourself. That one day, the V-structure of your relationship will collapse into a heap, and the three of you will be together. Footnote, Thompson, Motive Index of Folk Literature, Type T92.1, The Triangle Plot and Its Solutions. You put Val in a plane, and then the two of you drive back to Iowa. As farmland scrolls past you, you find yourself imagining a whole new life, a perfect intersection of hedonism and wholesomeness. Canning and pickling, writing in front of a fireplace, the three of you tangled in a bed, fighting with your kids, guidance counselor, explaining to your children that other families may not look like yours, but that doesn't mean something is wrong. Most kids will give anything to have three moms. You catch yourself mourning already. You look over at her. Let's take one more road trip together, she says. That's, sorry, I know that was super long, but (laughs) I just thought it was all very relevant because we're talking about the idea of language and the idea of like what femininity is and the idea of a dream house and the allure of a one-on-woman relationship or like a polyamorous relationship, the idea of like breaking the mold and then finding your own, your own place as an other that like gives you personal happiness despite societal constrictions, all very much embodies that to me. I totally agree. I think also something that I think is brilliant about this book, that for me at least, I only picked it up the second time that I read it, is the ways in which Machado... So that passage starts on page... So it's pretty early in the novel, or in the book. I keep saying novel because it's just such a beautiful... She has such beautiful storytelling and like there are fictional parts, but like I don't want to imply that any of this, like any of her experience is fictionalized. She so like she starts really starts this novel with like this beautiful she literally uses utopia at, at certain points, right? This like 
lesbian feminist utopia, essentially, that she's building in like this wonderful progressive polyamorous relationship. But when I went back and reread it, I saw so clearly the way she is able to lull the reader into ignoring certain red flags that happened even before that. Um, The first time I was reading it, I picked them up, but I was kind of like still interested to see how they play out almost, which probably makes me a bad person. But like I'm a reader and I was reading for a story. So like that's sort of how I felt to be perfectly honest. And the second time I was like, oh, holy fuck, she sets you up to knock you down the whole time. So that happens on page 40. On page 21, we have Dreamhouse's famous last words. The only thing it says is, we can fuck, she says, but we can't fall in love. Then we go to page 38, Dreamhouse's menagerie. A line has been crossed, you've fallen in love. I have to talk to Val, she says. I have to tell her, I have to figure this out. We've been together for three years, she finishes by way of explanation. And though everything has been on the up and up, you feel a weird stab of guilt. This is how emotions work, right? They get tangled and complicated. They take on their own life. Trying to control them is like trying to control a wild animal. No matter how much you think you've taught them, they're willful. They have minds of their own. That's the beauty of wildness. And then the next page, right before that uh, situation Harmony just read, Dreamhouse's star-crossed lovers. A few hours later, she knocks on your door. In your bedroom, she kisses you and explains Val is going to leave New York and come live with her in Indiana. But she wants you to come and visit, to continue dating. Val says we can try it, she says. I just, I think I've always been polyamorous and it makes so much sense. I want to be with both of you. I want to make this work. Is that crazy? No, you say, wiping tears from your glasses. I can't wait to try. So, like, she does a really fabulous job I think of putting you as a reader in that mindset where you're like sort of noticing red flags but then you I think as she clearly was able to at the time and I think as many people who are in terribly uncomfortable unfair awkward abusive emotionally manipulative situations like that you're able to put a band-aid over it because you need to justify it because at the time you want the thing so bad that like you're wearing rose-colored glasses that make nothing look like a red flag almost and going back through the book the second time to me I realized how hard I fell for that almost even though I felt like I was looking out for it like that first passage right we can fuck but we can't fall in love like huge red flag right off the bat but then when you know 15 pages later the whole narrative changes about it and like you get sucked back in you get reeled back in which is, I think, part of the beauty of the second person narration, because on the one hand, it is definitely Machado talking to her past self. But second person narration, just by design, always puts you in that perspective. So it's just such a brilliant move because you realize all of the things that, like, as a reader, you feel like you're probably not going to fall for. You do end up accidentally falling for and it really just makes you, like, reevaluate everything. Yeah, it's beautiful. Machado is a wonderful writer. Everyone should, she deserves all of the praise she is getting and everyone should just bow down. But yeah, that's amazing that you bring that up because I also definitely fell for it. But it is, it's weird when you go, like the the girl from me do later find out wasn't in an open relationship with Val. Um, like she was cheating on her and it's a red flag that the conversation keeps changing and Machado 
is just accepting it each time it changes, each time the rules change. And we also find out later that Val felt very forced into accepting the polyamorous relationship when it comes up. Um, which I think is also a really important aspect of this book as well, is that obviously Val's perspective, like it's coming from Carmen's perspective, Machado's perspective. So Val isn't, her perspective isn't brought up a ton in that way, but it is brought up enough so that you can see the way in which this woman is manipulated. Like she almost feels like a puppet master occasionally where she's just so deftly manipulating everyone in her life to just do and think and feel how she wants them to. Um, Yeah, which I think brings up a good, I think that's a good segue into the idea of the monster that we play with throughout the book. But before we go into that, while we were talking about this passage, um, I was thinking about our relationship in about patriarchy and how Machado plays with that and how it exists necessarily like in a femme relationship. And I feel like she's drawing this web in on purpose to talk about like how you can't exist outside of the context kind of like Maggie pointed out before like we all exist within these connections and we can't escape them and so utopia doesn't exist it's just a matter of like navigating yourself and your emotions and being kind to one another and like dealing with the fact that we all exist within these circumstances and then trying to actively respond to that totally and i think going off of that as well machado is really able to play on the idea of red flags i think a lot of the times i see people talking about red flags as something that you should be able to identify as they're happening to you and i think that in an ideal world that's true But I think a lot of the time it's untrue and we see red flags and things like that in hindsight, right? Like either after we're in a bad place and we feel kind of stuck there and we're like, oh, holy fuck, how did I like let this happen to myself? Or after you've hopefully managed to extricate yourself from the situation and been like, oh gosh, like looking back on this, I can now see all of these things that happen. And I feel like that ends up really kind of mimicking a lot of general sort of contexts about domestic violence no matter who it's between um i think part of what makes it more insidious here is that we're trained as people to overlook those things when it is women saying them because we're because there is no language about this in general and people don't talk about it a ton so like red flags i think for machado were potentially harder to pick out when she was experiencing this at the time because we don't have a ton of like how-to guides, right? To be like, these are red flags when women do and say this to you, as we do when it's like in a heteronormative context, right? And I think that for me, at least, I felt that really deeply on the reread because like even things I noticed as a red flag the first time as a reader, they don't hit you in the same way, or at least they didn't hit me in the same way until I went back again and went, oh, until you've read the whole story and like you know what happens and then have a chance to reflect yeah I think that's really important too like we can't identify red flags if we don't know what they are to begin with and in order to know what they are we need to have some sort of language surrounding it and I also think there's an interesting thing that Machado does a little bit throughout the book where she kind of justifies like how she became a victim by depicting other experiences and within her life and talking about like she never had a relationship even with a man like she 
she didn't have these sorts of relationships that were like this in order to to know what was happening and you know she talks about other instances in which her boundaries were pushed and you know there's like a instance when she's a teenager and her pastor kind of like rooms her and nothing explicitly sexual happens between them but like the boundaries on that relationship are pushed and i found that as a human because of my personal circumstances like really easy to identify with because like i wasn't surrounded by healthy relationships right so like it is hard to know what you're supposed to do if you don't have that sort of language to talk about it like i didn't know necessarily when the abuse began between like my high school my 17 year old self and my high school boyfriend that that was occurring because that was the that was like the only language for relationships i had and it was the healthier language and i thought that was the way it was supposed to be which is fucked up and wrong and i'm not trying to justify that but i also think that we we see that even a little bit with the the woman in the dream house's narrative because she says at one point we, like we see that her father is abusive to her mother and she says at one point i don't want to be like him is that the exact quote I, it's something like that yeah so language is super duper important <laughs> totally and something that i think so like it, Honestly, I found that also to be a super relatable part of this narrative as well. And I was lucky enough to grow up with some like pretty decent examples of healthy relationships around me, even though I like didn't date when I was younger and sort of did go to college with like, like honestly, my first real relationship is with my husband. <laughs> so I, I had other experiences before then. And I was lucky for that. But like, if we're talking about a traditional relationship, right, like I didn't have a narrative for that. So I think that also something that this highlights is the fact that I think a lot of the ways we talk about how domestic violence occurs in general is sort of to one size fits all. Like, yes, of course, definitely in this very specific experience of like, between two women, there's like no narrative to go off of. But I think that it really points to the fact that like, we talk about red flags, we talk about the things that you should look for, but I think that the way we talk about domestic violence generally is too generalized, to the point where it's hard to know what you should be looking for in healthy relationships. I've seen recently a lot of push to be talking about green flags, like things that show that a partner is potentially a good fit for you, but like, I just don't know. I feel like to a certain extent, all of this stuff about the way we talk about relationships and what makes a good and bad relationship and a healthy and an unhealthy relationship and an abusive relationship ends up being so steeped in an idealized, utopianized pop culture narrative that it's hard to pick out what should actually be going on. Yes. Yes, I agree. And I think that's that, that's shown throughout this story. But let's talk a little bit about the idea of monster because I think that Machado does some really, really interesting things with like this this evolution of her lover turning into the monster and essentially someone she doesn't know. What were your thoughts on that? I thought it was really, really brilliant, especially all of the different ways that monster comes up. Because it's she she has like a monster character almost that occurs throughout this entire um, throughout the entire book essentially, but there's also other ways in which monster comes up 
in the sense that we talk early in the book about um, Hans Christian Andersen and the wild swans fairy tale and about villains in that. We have a whole section about queer villainy and like fictional like monsters in general and like what their role is and whether or not they're good or bad and things like that. And we also have uh, Dreamhouse's Bluebeard, which for me is really where the monster starts to come out for the first time, even though she's just sort of recounting the tale of Bluebeard, which is also one of the places that Harmony was talking about that you really see the way that this book connects with her body and other parties because there is a whole story in there that we actually talked about last season uh, about Bluebeard, which was one of my favorites in that one. Like the monster takes on so many different forms. It's just so well done and so brilliant. And I think also connects to the ways in which like it can be hard to identify when bad things are happening when the monster takes different shapes and different forms, right? Like it's not always a monster that you see. So not only does the like, very explicitly put out monster that she talks about change throughout this book but even the way she talks about that monster and talks about villainy in general is very different and very multifaceted and makes it hard to pin down which i'm sure is how she probably felt at the time like i think that's what she's trying to get across yes yes do you want to read that like a section from that bluebeard quote to just kind of give us a textual reference i can i just had it up i shouldn't have closed it memento Sorry. No, no, no. It's all good. It was one of my absolute favorite parts of this book. It's on page 59. It's the very last um, vignette in section one, which is really where we're setting up sort of like the foreground of stuff that's happening. So that's part of the reason I thought this was brilliant placement also because it really gave like a foreboding, foreshadowing sense of what was going to happen. Let's see. In a very direct way, too. Sorry. For her. Yeah, for sure. All right, I'm sorry if this is kind of a lot of reading, but so much of this is relevant. I will probably be paraphrasing. I'm not going to read the entire page and a half, but... Not like Harmony? <laughs> I mean, I could, honestly. I should. We're already at 52 minutes, and I feel like we haven't even... <laughs> we're not even close to done. So page 59, Dreamhouse's Bluebeard. Bluebeard's greatest lie was that there was only one rule. The newest wife could do anything she wanted. Anything, as long as she didn't do that single arbitrary thing. Didn't stick that tiny inconsequential key into that tiny inconsequential lock. But we all know that was just the beginning of test. She failed, and lived to tell the tale as I have. But even if she'd passed, even if she'd listened, there would have been some other request, a little larger, a little stranger. And if she'd kept going, kept allowing herself to be trained, like a corset fanatic pinching her waist smaller and smaller, there'd have been a scene where Bluebeard danced around with the rotting corpses of his past wives clasped in his arms, and the newest wife would have sat there mutely, suppressing growing horror and swallowing the egg of vomit that bubbled behind her breastbone. And then later, another scene in which he did unspeakable things to the bodies. Women. They'd once been women. And she just stared out into the middle distance, seeking some mute purgatory where she could live forever. Because she hadn't blinked at the key and its conditions, hadn't paused when he told her her footfalls were too heavy for his liking, hadn't protested when he fucked her while she wept, hadn't declined when he suggested she stop speaking, hadn't said a word when he left bruises on her arms, hadn't scolded him for for speaking to her like she was a dog or a child, hadn't run screaming down the path from the castle into the nearest village pleading with someone to help, help, help. It made logical sense that she sat there and watched him spinning around the wife of body number four, its decaying head flopping backwards on a hinge of flesh. 
This is how you are toughened, the new Rife reasoned. This is where the tenacity of love is practiced. It's tensile strength, it's durability. You are being tested and you are passing the test, sweet girl, sweet self. Look how good you are, look how loyal, look how loved. Oh boy. Her sentence by sentence writing level is just so fucking good. She has so many important messages in this and this is such an important story that I don't want to dwell it on it dwell on it too long but like her writing is so poignant and so beautiful and I really have not read a lot of other authors where like every single word choice is just chef's kiss I just want to put that out there (laughs) she's a magnificent writer yeah so that's a very that's a good parable to start with because it almost directly like it's kind of setting us up for what is going to happen it like directly serves as an I was just gonna say especially that middle paragraph where she goes on to say like what she didn't stop like the wife didn't stop that's Machado self-inserting right into her experience yeah yeah yeah. and the idea of like having even the fact that Bluebeard had multiple wives like this is a cycle and a pattern that this woman in particular uh, like with her abuse it seems we find out at the very end perpetuates with each new girl and each person becomes Machado in a way. Yeah. I I think I like before what you were saying about the different view, like the different forms that villainy can take because our language for monsters only comes from horror and sci-fi. And I think that's part of why, I mean, also Machado likes to write with that anyway, and maybe like finds some affinity with it. But like, I think that's part of why she uses so many parables that deal with horror and sci-fi and like places that onto the narrative, because that is, that's our language for what being a monster is. And for me personally, like my ideology has always been like, as somebody that has been, you know, has, has a, and it's experienced trauma, like most people have, but has also been very adjacent to domestic violence kind of throughout my life. My my entire narrative has always been like, we are all capable of being the monster. And I don't know that Machado gets into that as much, but like the fact that the monster can exist anywhere and it's not, it's not like monsters don't exist in real life. Monsters don't exist. People are monsters. We are the people doing the bad things. Yeah. I'm sorry, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think the Bluebeard example really lends itself to that because Bluebeard is a ghost story, typically. Um, And I think something that especially people of our generation, Machado is not actually that much older than Harmony and I. Um, She's a millennial. Yeah, we're we're all millennials here, even though she's on (laughs) potentially the other end of the millennial spectrum than we are. But like, I think a lot of us grow up with the Bluebeard short story especially in scary story scary stories to tell in the dark like that just seems a very ubiquitous part of childhood which i think she less directly references here but is really strongly paralleled to the scary stories we tell in the dark in the bluebeard story and her body and other parties that like i feel like it's a really brilliant choice because she makes him human first of all she like removes the ghost story aspect of it but it still relates so strongly about that monstrous, right? Like, because it is othered in the original story that most people reading this are probably familiar with. And we're used to thinking of it as a ghost story in this ghostly ship and having vivid flashbacks to the Scooby-Doo episode about it where, like, the, the ghost ship comes out and it's Bluebeard Zoinks, you know? Like, she takes 
she does a really brilliant job, I think, especially for potentially other millennials of bringing in cultural references that most of us are probably familiar with and changing them just enough to like really drive in the point about monstrosity and how we think about and talk about it and the fact that it's always other most of the time at least and non-human even though even with the bluebeard ghost story right like we talk about it and it's scary as a ghost story but really the horror happened when he was still alive and still a man so she brings us back to that point and she centered us she centered us there and then we moved forward into what descends into being a dystopian story like at the beginning of the story we've got a title dreamhouse's utopia at the end we've got it dreamhouse's dystopia right like she takes us along this narrative arc that is really centered around the monstrosity in people yes and kind of along those lines although i might struggle with the connection here there's another point like when when Machado in the real the real life narrative, like her actual experience, when she starts to realize that her partner is a monster, as I've said before, she already talks about like realizing that she doesn't know her. And for me, that point was really driven home after I think probably one of the most violent incidences in this book, where the partner chases Machado along the house and Machado like locks herself into the bathroom and the partner's banging on the door. And um the next day, Machado talks to her partner about this. And the quote is, it, it, the vignette is called Dreamhouse's Soap Opera. And the quote is, she doesn't remember. She tells you before you go to sleep. She remembers being at the bar and then crouching over you naked. Everything in between is darkness. So there's like a very real disconnect from the person that Machado is able to communicate with and the monster, which just kind of blew my mind because... I think that violence, I mean, obviously there are some people who are, there There are, the, the victim party is the one that is definitely most harmed by violence, but like violence is inherently harmful to everyone in, in my view. And it just like, this sort of trauma is something it seems like the abuser herself cannot fathom and connect for herself. And she's not even like, able to communicate it or like she doesn't want to but she won't communicate it with Machado and therefore it just keeps reenacting itself something that I think is interesting about that too is that even though I think the abuser the perpetrator in this case never is really able to at least for our knowledge to connect those two parts of them themselves herself Machado does and um as we go throughout the book, the monster and the abuser get closer and closer together when they're being talked about. Whereas initially, I think, in a sort of potentially traditional viewpoint of domestic violence, like, when dealing with an abuser, sometimes it feels like you're dealing with two different people, like the person that you actually love, and then this other person that comes out sometimes. Mm -hmm. And something that I found that was really almost empowering as much as it was sad was watching Machado be able to put these two people together and understand that like the monster isn't separate and that the monster is never going to leave and therefore Machado herself has to extricate and that takes a lot of fucking work for her which I think both heartbreaking and entirely realistic right like people in domestic violence situations tend to stay there because I mean of a lot of reasons but like there's a reason they got into that relationship to begin with, right? Like for the most part, there is something to be to be liked or loved about that person. 
and then the intensity goes up. So watching Machado string together the monster metaphor with the abuser was really, I think, powerfully and brilliantly done as much it was as it was also difficult to read about. Because from her perspective, I think, at least for me as a reader, the closer the monster and the abuser get together, the more her heart breaks. Because she does love the person, right? Like, at least for a while. And that's part of the reason she has a hard time extricating herself. Yeah, and it's kind of like this continual realization she doesn't, she can't love the person though, right? Because she didn't know the whole person. Because yeah, she this the idea of who that person could be sometimes shows herself to be as. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think gets at what you're talking about. Exactly. And your heart breaks for Machado because you want her to be safe. And then your heart also breaks for Machado because there's points where she's really vulnerable and her heart is breaking, you know? Oh, okay. What else do we want to get at? <sighs> There's so much. There's so, so much. Something that I found that I think for me is one of the most powerful vignettes in this one that I just want to mention. It's one of her one liners. It's page 112, Dreamhouse's Epiphany. And all it says is most types of domestic abuse are completely legal, which I think also gets back to the power conversation that we were happening, which I think also ties into the ways in which domestic violence, as we talk about it, is so heteronormative. Because the physical abuse in in this book doesn't come about until, for the most part, the, the, like, past halfway point, at the very least. But the abuse is happening, and the manipulation, the emotional and psychological manipulation, happens from the beginning. And there just isn't language written even into the law and protections written into those places that, like, adequately covers I think most kinds of emotional and psychological abuse and like there's just such a failure of language to protect victims not even just of language just like a failure of society to understand what it's like to be in these situations and I think that's part of the reason potentially why Machado also writes in the second person because like we were talking about before since it forces you to step in it forces you to have a real emotional connection with what's happening and forces you to really empathize in a way that I found super powerful. But yeah, I just wanted to call that one out there as like a statement that I think isn't talked about enough and is really at the center of what happens in this book. And I think part of the reason why Machado ends up getting so trapped. Yes, I agree. I think it 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 plays into what we've been talking about throughout with the language thing. We as a society just don't even carry like legal language for uh, abuse that isn't physical. And it's hard. It's hard that you talked about like how people there's no language to describe for people who are in these situations as a society. But like I feel and this could be wrong, but I feel that most people in our society have experienced some sort of abuse that wasn't physical at the very least. Like, it's just so prevalent. We don't, as a society, talk enough about relationships and how to love each other and how to be empathetic towards people and, like, boundaries. I agree with you, but I think there's such a lack of language that even though a lot of people experience this, it a lot of people don't necessarily identify it as that until much later or if ever. Yeah. No, I agree. I think... One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is like the idea of 
the heterosexual relationship dynamic. And maybe Maggie can speak even more to this than I can because, like, she is married, you know? She's like a white lady actually living in a suburb, I believe, (laughs) who is married. But, like, there is a lot of... I think that it's just something that I'm coming to at, at this point in my life, being also being in a heterosexual relationship and like being a, a grown up for the first time. Like there just seems like there is so much harm within that idea and within those relationship dynamics that we think about for relationships. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that, yeah, most people probably don't have any way to identify what is happening to them. But it's still not okay, which is why we need to talk about it and why we as a society should be educating ourselves and why I don't know what the legal world would look like for this. But like, I think that there should be better avenues for people to pursue justice. Yeah, I just think that there need to be better ways for us to like pursue some sort of resolution for this. And there needs to be language and education so that we can identify these things and learn how to treat each other properly. And that's not to like minimize the harm that happens in this particular relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, the other thing I want to mention is the do your own is the choose your own adventure section of this book. Because to me, it just so desperately illustrates, right? I think that there's a really harmful narrative around domestic violence and domestic violence victims about like, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you just do what you quote unquote should have done, right? And Machado really puts you in your place, I think, as a reader from that perspective, because like, I don't know, did you do the choose your own adventure? Because I sure as hell didn't. I just read straight through. And then I got yelled at by Machado as it was happening because she's sitting there like, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be on this page. You didn't follow directions, right? So like, I th- to me, that whole section was just sheer brilliance. Because on the one hand, if you do the choose your own adventure, you're so directly put in her position where you're trying desperately hard to make the right decision to get an outcome where you aren't hurt and if you don't you're just sitting there sort of proving the point about like why doing what you should quote unquote is really fucking hard you know yeah npr actually read me the choose your own adventure before i actually read this book that was like an excerpt somewhere so i had already experienced it and i did kind of try to do it and then i just ended up doing it literally because i already had experienced it but yeah it's it's mind-blowing like you're you just end up in a perpetual cycle over and over and over again eventually she's like eventually she lets you out and she's like that's not how it really happened but I'm gonna give it to you yeah it's just it's such a stroke of brilliance within this book I think it it really just goes to reinforce everything else that we've already talked about but like she does she makes her points so creatively you know like the choose your own adventure section really just hammered honed me so much of what was happening, like the perpetualness, how understanding things linearly is not possible in these situations as much as you want to, like the desperation you feel to just make the right choice to appease this like powerful being in your life who's going to hurt you. Like the whole thing was just so good. I think that's the last thing I had for my section of notes. Do we want to talk about Val? Well, wait, before we talk about Val, because we do need to talk about Val, because, whoa, that's a mind fucked. Um, <laughs> before we talk about Val, one other thing that I wanted to talk about is not just language, but the power of naming. In the very beginning of this book, like in our kind of preface, 
Machado talks about how this is her story. And she talks about like people she loves who are outside and who are periphery. And she's like, I'm sure they all have their own stories. You know, like they're not just sidekicks in mine, but this is my story. And as much as I continually in this episode, I think because of my own perspective and experience with life, keep pointing out the ways in which like we get to see the monster's perspective. Machado is really careful about like, she doesn't ever give that to us. She doesn't ever give us the perspective of the woman in the dream house. We only get it through her eyes, which I think is really important and purposeful. Because as we were discussing before, like we don't have the language for it, but also we don't respect personal experiences really as a society, which is part of the issue. We don't believe people when they tell us about their feelings. And it kind of goes back to that quote that I pulled out earlier where Machado is talking about like being called melodramatic and how like people just don't let women speak for themselves. And I would argue too that this exists for everyone in some sort of context, even though it is most certainly worse and institutionalized more for certain sets of people. People who I would, who are a lot like Machado, who are like queer, you know, people of color and women, especially. So I just really appreciated this book as a tool of empowerment for Machado, but like also I think for the reader. To like see somebody naming their experiences and being like, this is my story. And I think that's why writing is important. Like that's why people have voices. We need more stories. We need more representation. Okay. She's also really cared that you never empathize with the abuser. Yeah. You don't get her perspective. You don't get anything. I think the closest you come to being able to see her point of view at all is the part that Harmony referenced earlier, where it is briefly mentioned that the abuser comes from a family where the the father abused the mother and things like that mm-hmm. but like her actions are in no way justified and stuff and like to me that just feels like such a reason why stories are sometimes better left in the hands of people who have personal experiences with them because like of course somebody who's been victimized by this isn't going to give their abuser or perpetrator anything like that and i feel like in a lot of popular culture and a lot of media there are backstories given and there are like extensive reasons given to why abusers and perpetrators do these things and like sure sometimes for like data-driven crime tracking reasons whatever like we do need to know about like backgrounds and stuff like that but like When it comes to just honoring the victim's stories, that stuff isn't necessary and shouldn't be included. So, like, I'm not surprised that Machado does this because, again, she's telling her own personal experience. But it's something that I'd like to see in more accounts, fictional and not, to just be able to be like, yeah, like, this is my story. Which really comes full circle to what we were talking about at the very beginning with the footnotes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. Do you want to talk about Val? (laughs) We can. You were so full disclosure. Harmony was more fucked up about this than I was because I knew who Machado's wife was before I read this book. So, <laughs> yeah. So at the very end, like towards the end of the book, Val, who we discussed earlier, is the the woman. The woman in the dream house is dating at the time that she and Machado meet. Val isn't really mentioned for the majority of the book. Like she's mentioned in the beginning. You know and, that they stay, like, kind of friends throughout the book. Yeah, you know that they kind of stay friends, but, like, she really doesn't have a presence until the very end when we find out that, like, they do have 
this friendship and they they talk and eventually like kind of in just a rush it's talked about like oh and eventually they kiss and then eventually they're dating and then like they're married all of a sudden and you're like what because having read Machado's other book her body and other parties I I don't know how I knew this I don't think it's mentioned in there but like I knew that Machado was in a loving relationship with a woman. I think that's something that she talks about. It's in her author bio for that book. That's right. Yes, it's in her author bio. And like you're reading this book and you're like, oh, that's good. Because even in that book, there is a story about women who love woman abuse. And, you know, it's like, oh, because she she depicts women generally, I'd say, in that book. And like the fantasy of woman, loving woman in a very utopian sort of light. So I read that and I was like, oh my God, is Val the utopia? And it's also, it's it's her real life. But also like as a story device, it's just incredible, I guess. I don't know. Like it just, it works out so perfectly that like the two women that met over this this other woman and were, it's not explicitly said that Val was abused by her, but she was at least cheated on by her. Mm-hmm like come together and form their own their own romance and like they get their happy ending it's literally so it's it's on page 218 where all of this really comes out which is the last part of chapter uh, of part four and part five is very short it's like 20 pages and the the title is dream house's plot twist so like machado really does i think um Play with i don't want to say yeah she's like she like acknowledges it right like i think it's definitely woven into this narrative that like there's almost a fairy tale like ending but it's also a plot twist and it's also unlikely but i think something really important that she acknowledges in this passage is the fact that the reason that they're that they work is because i'll just read one sentence i could read this whole thing but we've read so much (laughs) eventually you and val will come to love each other outside this context so like Yes, they initially come together because of their initial bonding about the woman in the dream house and like what they both experienced and suffered at her hands. But like the reason that it works is because together they're able to grow and move beyond that. And I think that's really beautiful. I do also think, though, that because this is her, you know, real life and like Val is her actual wife, there probably is a certain level of like the reason that Val isn't more prominently included in here could be just because of Val's privacy, you know, and like what she's comfortable sharing and stuff. Yeah. For Machado to really just like center this book on herself. But I do agree that like the whole dream house is plot twist thing. Like it is a plot twist, right? It does feel like, whoa, really? Like that's who you're with. Um, But in a beautiful and hopeful way, I think though that, I mean, it's hard to say, right? Like I can't critique her real life. I'm really happy for her. I'm happy that her and Val are there. I do think, though, that sometimes with narratives about domestic violence, sometimes I get worried when there's fairy tale endings, because unfortunately, that's not the way life works for a lot of people who are victims of domestic abuse. Uh, or survivors. Or, yeah, of survivors. But like, I'm really happy that's how it worked out for Machado. You know, like, it's hard because it's like, on the one hand, maybe that isn't the typical experience. But on the other hand, it is Machado's experience and I'm really happy for her that it is, you know? And I think that's also part of the reason why Machado makes it really clear at the beginning, like, this is literally just my story 
with a bunch of text interwoven into it to talk about it. Which is extra important because she says, I forgot the page, but she says explicitly that the first published work about lesbian violence, like domestic violence, comes out the year that she was born. Like, Machado's not that old. It's only 30-something years old, you know? So, like... Yeah, I don't really know where I was going with that. I just, I have a lot of, I, I, it makes me feel warm and fuzzy for her that she got where she needed to go at the end. Me too, me too. Um, I found it just like poetic because, I don't know, I just love the whole, like, I love that she's able to create this story of her life and give it meaning. And that is like, that is kind of the perfect ending. But I do think it's important, too, that she mentions that, like, she she talks about how they grew to love each other outside of this context. And then and then she talks about, like, moving in together and getting engaged and married because you can't really be serious until you're on your own that way. In her afterward, she also talks about, like, very explicitly, more so explicitly than she has throughout this story, because you know, the story does use a lot of experimental writing techniques. Mm-hmm. She talks about how this story really is like, yes, it's her story, but also it is meant to be a cultural critique. And it's like specifically meant for women who love women. But she also acknowledges that like her experience isn't going to cover everybody. It's not going to cover the experiences of trans women or other queer women necessarily, even though she would like to and would like to like contribute to that dialogue it's not her experience so she can't speak about it Mm -hmm. uh in that way so and she also mentions too like how this isn't a complete text but it's one that like she's happy to write and she hopes like is a catalyst for other texts about this sort of you know violence i think also something i like in her afterward is that um She says at the very end, page 245, "Um, there isn't a lot of writing about queer domestic abuse and sexual assault, but what I did find kept me going. I read Connor Habib's heart-stopping essay. If you ever did write anything about me, I'd want it to be about love and the immediate aftermath of my abuse. And it devastated me and also gave me something to hold on to. So like, I think there's also something really beautiful about that as well as the fact that like, to me, I think especially the way she frames the ending, like, this is also sort of a hopeful story and something that you can hold on to a little bit. Like, yes, it's terrifying and there are scary things in here and it really is a story that will make your heart pound. But like, there is happiness in here as well, even if it's hard won and even if you have to fight for it. Like, And I think sometimes when the world is really hard, especially just if it's hard because of who you are as a human being, how you came into this world, you really just need that piece of hope to be like, yes, the world is a scary and terrifying place. But like, even if it's hard, one happiness is available, you know? Yeah, it exists. And I think that sometimes what it means to fight for injustice and for people who have less opportunities for those happiness. Like, I think sometimes that's what it means is that like when you're fighting injustice, you're fighting for more opportunities for people to be happy. I agree. And I also think even though at the end, like the relationship with Val is just a footnote, I think, and I can't speak for Machado, but I think it was important to place in there because Machado kind of talks 
throughout the story that the reason why queer representation on domestic violence doesn't exist in the way that it should is because queer people have been so marginalized and like the idea of woman loving woman was unfathomable to many people and for for a lot of history and was, you know, like it, it meant that you weren't a woman, but also that you could get institutionalized. So you were really subjected just for like being queer and for loving people. So just because she had this experience, I think it's really an acknowledgement that like you can be both, you can have both. Yeah. All right. Shall we wrap up? Cause we're at almost an hour and a half. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Maggie, what are you reading? Wait, I, we have to talk first. Is this a feminist book? Oh, right, 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 right. I always forget. Um, yes. There's five men in it. You know, it passes the Bechdel test. Actually, does it? Does it count if you're like talking about a woman you're in a relationship with? I need more knowledge about the Bechdel test. And, you know, it talks about like how women can't talk about like men they're in a relationship with. But like, we're talking about women here. So I, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I think it's a feminist book. It's talking about like female experiences almost exclusively. Yeah, I totally agree. The Bechdel test isn't usually how I measure, um, so I, I don't really know. Uh, just personally, like, it's just not a test that I use particularly often. That's just what I like to do because it's, like, the base, you know? Yeah, I get You have get two it. women talking to each other about anything other than a man, and I do it mostly for comedic effect because we should have so much more. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> I, I totally agree with you that this is absolutely a feminist book, and I think that talking about your experiences in this way just it, it's just an inherently feminist thing to do right like she's in she's addressing injustice by sharing her own injustices which is for me sometimes the bravest way to do it right because like you put yourself in the in a vulnerable position and you put yourself in the spotlight essentially for like the greater good in education and understanding of everyone else yeah and also I think too one of the ways we've talked about measuring whether or not a book is feminist is like having a woman um go beyond the context of her society and like, or like overcoming the context of her society. And what's really interesting about this book is that even though it centers around a narrative of abuse, like Machado, the character of Machado is doing that in the beginning. Like she's still going out of the context and overcoming. And then it's kind of a like, well, even though you've overcome, here's like, it doesn't, it doesn't get easier. You still have to deal with it. For sure. For sure. All right, Harmony, what are you reading? What am I reading? Uh, uh, what am I reading? Hmm. Oh, <laughs> I'm reading one of the next books we're going to read, The Parable of the Sours by Octavia Butler. What are you reading? I am reading, I'm kind of in between things because I just finished a book last night, but I think the next thing I'm going to pick up and that I'm like three pages into is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Yay! And next week we're going to talk about 1980s. Bite-sized bits bite-sized bits we're still doing that it still exists until january <laughs> until we get to 2021 no until um, we, well, well yeah i mean literally for sure what else what oh we homework homework it's only been two weeks since we recorded an episode <laughs> how, how have we forgotten how to do this uh, i, I what, haven't slept well <laughs> fair enough what's your homework harmony damn you had to start with me um okay well, I don't know. I think that like lately a part of my education and a part of like my I'm going to be a good person thing when I'm not doing direct activism 
has been like reading different voices and different perspectives. And I finally wrote a poem. So like that was good because I hadn't been writing for a while. So then like taking those perspectives and figuring out what my new ideology is based off of them. So I think for me, it's just going to be kind of continuing that and trying to continue that when my life gets more busy as it's about to in the near future. So yeah, I'm just going to continue to like, I think throughout doing this podcast, we just finished our first season. So I'm still like pretty emotional in this. And I guess it's a good segue because we're, 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 this is our first episode of season two, but like throughout this podcast, I've really been more conscientious about what I consume in general. And I've also started reading more as a part of this podcast, I think, and also like COVID and having the time to do that more in my life. But um, like, I, I realize that sometimes like when I'm just choosing what to read, I don't read a lot of narratives that are people of color. And I think that I really need to like, I think I'm at a point where I can read and like push myself to read more perspectives that aren't, that don't match my own. And yeah, I just like, I really want to like take this, this moment and this radical energy and like figure out what it is that I feel about the world so that I can better enact that and enact the change that needs to happen. Because in order to do that, and while I'm going to still do that simultaneously, in order to do that, I do kind of have to have a better educational understanding. Yeah. And I don't just mean about like Black lives. I mean about like this whole system and structure. So going beyond that, going beyond just reading like books that talk about racism and stuff like that, and going to like look at different political ideologies and philosophies and just different people and different ideas in general, which is something I think as a journalist and like that episode of my life, I was kind of pushing away a little bit. I wasn't embracing philosophy and I'm kind of like at the point right now where I'm coming around and being like, oh wait, philosophy does have a use and this is it. (laughs) Okay, Maggie, that was my long-winded answer. What is your homework? Honestly, I think mine is kind of similar, but maybe a little bit more specific, which is that a lot of times when I read diverse perspectives, I read diverse perspectives in which like, a lot of times we come from such different backgrounds that there's like very little touching overlapping experience because in the work of like empathy and becoming a more empathetic person, which yes, is work you have to do. It doesn't just happen naturally, but that's my master's thesis. So we won't go too deep into that is like where you have to do a lot of work and a lot of deepening and like a lot of um, education and like sharing perspectives. But I think that because of that, sometimes I miss the places in which like, right, like, I think this book is a great example, right? Like, I, I think clearly have a touching point, right, where like, I'm able to identify with a lot of what's happening in this book. But so much of Machado's experience, like really 95% of it doesn't overlap with mine and I think for me sometimes that's those are stories that I don't consume in education that I don't consume as much because since I have that touching point I feel more connected um and I feel like I therefore know more of what's happening and that's a mistake that I need to not make going out into the future and diversifying to make sure that like even though me and author A have like X, Y, and Z in common, understanding that like the rest of the alphabet is still there and educating on those areas as well versus like just talking about people whose experiences are just like 
real, real different than mine, other than the fact that we're humans, you know, like, I think it's important to understand both of those perspectives and to be educated and thinking and donating to all of the above, you know? Yes. Yeah, that's just a tendency that I've noticed in myself recently. That's part of the reason I like Goodreads, actually, even though it's supported by fucking Amazon and I'm looking at a new way to track my reading. But like, I do find it useful to be able to just go through a list and be like, okay, what are you reading? And I noticed, right, like, I have a lot of diversity on my reading list, but less so in places where I feel in certain areas, like intersectionally connected to the author. And so that's something I want to change. That was also a really long-winded answer. I feel like it's gotten to the point with homework sometimes where, like, it's got to be really specific because that's sometimes what homework is, right? Like, you can't just say broad, sweeping things and be like, I'm going to do this and change the world, right? Like, that's what I do every week. What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, same, same. But, like, just reflecting on it, I'm th- I also write, like, it is the very end of season one. And looking back on the homeworks that I feel like I was successful on, it was the stuff where I was more specific and smaller because, like, at the end of the day, I also, you know, like work a job and have a family and all of this other stuff. So like trying to change the world has to happen for me right now in my personal context in slightly more bite-sized pieces. Not to make this episode go on for forever, but that's really interesting because I've actually had the opposite problem where like if I choose something specific, there have been a few cases where I followed up on it. But like if I choose something really specific and like I don't have the time then I end up feeling that guilt But for me, a lot of this reading, like, because I'm a thematic person, ends up becoming, like, a theme in my life. And it does end up being more big picture, but, like, somehow intersectional. And so, yeah, like, right now, the theme in my life, because we're recording at the end of June, is Black Lives Matter, but also philosophy and, and counterbalancing personal happiness with, like, the desire for actual real revolution and to burn shit. So, like... The, the goal to educate myself, I think, is a more doable goal, like to educate myself on philosophies and diversity of perspectives in general and not just like diversity in terms of race. Um, I think that's a little bit more doable. So that's interesting. <laughs> and I think that's totally fair. You know, like everyone, I think that also goes to show that when like doing the work of like anti-racism, of becoming more inclusionary, more intersectional, dismantling power people, like there is a certain extent where everyone is different and like everyone's going to go about that work in a different way, right? Like Harmony and I are just different people who think in different ways in that circumstance, right? And also are more or less busy at certain times, you know? Because unfortunately, as much as I would like to just devote all of my time to education, for example, educating myself and others, like we do still live in a capitalist society where I need to work. And like that takes up a lot of my day and stuff, so. Exactly. Uh, My dog screaming though so i do have to go all right bye friends talk to you next week oh we did we already talked about that yeah talk to you next week Bye. bye don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app you can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support to this podcast button our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter 
and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.